This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Samantha Donovan, coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. Tonight, no short-term fix for the health system in a long-awaited review of Medicare. The government says the focus isn't on money, but major reform. Also, China accused of using a high-altitude balloon to spy on America, why an age-old espionage tool is coming back into fashion. And we head to the beach, where dozens of Aboriginal children from the bush are learning how to stay safe in the water. I found shells, hermit crabs and stripy fish and coral. It's just beautiful, especially when one of the kids say, That's a big river, never seen one that big before because I haven't seen the ocean before. First tonight, a much-anticipated report on how to fix our broken healthcare system has disappointed some in the sector. The Australian Medical Association and some GPs say the strengthening Medicare Task Force report offers nothing to help Australians access affordable healthcare in the short term. They were hoping for a commitment to increase funding for the Medicare system. But the Health Minister says the report's focus isn't on money but policy changes. Catherine Gregory Everyone agrees, Medicare is in bad shape. But it's how to fix the sick system that's still contested among politicians and public health experts. Yet, if you speak to those working on the front line, the answer is pretty simple. It all comes down to increasing funding. That's Dr Shay Wilcox. They need to increase funding to primary care. And that includes allied health and it includes general practice. He's disappointed with the strengthening Medicare task force report released today, which gives ideas on how to improve patient access to primary health care and make GPs more affordable. Their vision to strengthen Medicare sounds great. Um, There's not a lot of detail in there that I think um, is immediately useful. For me, it simply comes down to increasing funding to primary care. He says the decades-long underinvestment in Medicare and the freeze on the Medicare rebate means GPs have to pass more costs onto patients and patients have a much larger gap to pay when they see a doctor. People are suffering because of that. There's not enough general practitioners to support the population. The report had 21 recommendations. The main ones include supporting GPs to care for patients with complex chronic disease, funding GPs for longer consultation times and working after hours, as well as helping Australians on low incomes to afford to see doctors. It also suggests fast-tracking the supply of all healthcare professionals and investing in better digital technology for GPs, including the My Health Record system. That's so they can better share patient data and connect across all parts of the health system. A big takeaway from the report, though, is installing more multidisciplinary teams of healthcare professionals to work together in a one-stop-shop type of clinic. That's similar to the clinic that Dr Shea Wilcox runs in Melbourne. Uh, We have a variety of allied health staff. Um, There are physios, uh, osteopaths, dietitians, speech pathologists, uh, psychologists. There's sort of a two-way street to manage and form a sort of care arrangement with patients. He says it works really well for the patients, but it's not that simple or a silver bullet. There's no change to what the patient uh, may have to pay 
just by having a variety of practitioners under one roof. The Australian Medical Association has also criticised the report and political leaders' response to it. President Steve Robson says it only offered a long-term vision. The problem is there is absolutely nothing in the report as released today that will allow Australians who are struggling to see a GP uh, or to struggling to afford to see a GP see that GP any more quickly any more affordably. He too wanted a commitment from the report and the federal government for an increase to Medicare funding. So what we'd like to have seen today is an announcement that there'll be a retrospective indexation of Medicare uh, rebates for uh, consultation item numbers that would reflect the cost of care having uh, accounted for all of the, um, the fact that it's been frozen and hasn't been uh, indexed for years. Health Minister Mark Butler didn't rule out an increase to the Medicare rebate for GPs, saying it'll become clearer with the upcoming federal budget. It's not just about more money, it's about getting the settings right, it's about getting the policy right. Affordability is a clear challenge and of, of course as a Labor government we're considering a whole range of options about the Medicare rebate as well as all of these reforms. Dr Nicole Higgins is the President of the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners and was involved in the Medicare Task Force. She says there's many funding challenges for GPs that still haven't been addressed by federal and state and territory politicians. This report is not going to increase our rates of bulk billing uh, and it's not going to address the gap between providing care and the cost to patients. The other area that hasn't come out of today is payroll tax. This is a double tax on general practice and a tax on Medicare. GPs already pay payroll tax but this is now on Medicare and that will be passed on to patients. That will kill bulk billing overnight and it will undermine any federal reforms. The federal government has set aside $750 million to fund its Medicare overhaul. Catherine Gregory reporting. Dr Elizabeth Devaney is the CEO of the Consumers Health Forum of Australia and a member of the Strengthening Medicare Task Force. Dr Devaney, the, the healthcare system's in crisis, but this report's being described as a document with little detail by groups, including the AMA. The federal opposition says it's a document without any urgency. Is your organisation disappointed there's not going to be more immediate action to, to fix some of the problems? Well, CHF sees this as a win for health consumers as the government has agreed to putting them front and centre in all decisions about the reform of primary health care. I would agree that this no one wants to wait, uh, but we do need to get this right. And right means considering long-term changes to the way that primary care is funded, which allow for wraparound care to be delivered to those who need it most. Right now, our system provides rebates to the doctors that actually give them more funding if they see people for shorter periods of time, and that's really not what we want people to focus on. So your organisation's calling for an increase to bulk billing and, and reduced healthcare costs, of course. So how, how should that be done? Well, we would like to see, and we support the, the call for an increase in rebates um, for um, primary care consultations. We see that as part of a bigger fix. Does the Consumer Health Forum have an idea on how much 
you'd like to see the Medicare rebate increased by? We heard today even the AMA can't say how much the rebate should go up. No, we don't have a figure in mind. We would say that a change to rebates needs to come alongside with funding for more coordinated care, which allows all health professionals working to support people who are unwell to be funded to deliver that care right now. Our Medicare system doesn't allow people to be funded to do the work that health consumers desperately want them to do. So you'd like to see the, the rebate go up immediately? Um, as, well, um, yes, we'd be supportive of an increase as soon as it's practical. The key for consumers is they can get all of the care they need at the one place at a cost they can afford. Yes, the task force has recommended that GPs have a, a team of allied health professionals around them, but the report doesn't mention anything as far as I can see about what we do to address the workforce shortages. Where are we going to get all these extra healthcare professionals? It's true that that's a significant issue now, particularly given the impact of the pandemic in the last few years on our health workforce. Providing funding which um, incentivises people to work in teams can reduce the overall workload on people like our GPs, our very hardworking GPs. You were on the task force representing the Consumers Health Forum. So if somebody you represent as a, as a patient, a health consumer who's right now struggling to afford to see a GP or get an appointment with a doctor or, or waiting for elective surgery. What do you say is in the report for them in the short term? Well, first I'd just say we, we share their concern. We understand that people are struggling to get access to healthcare. We understand that people are struggling to afford healthcare. We would say that in the report for those, particularly those who have significant chronic disease, the new model of primary care that's being suggested will provide them with better access to more care at a lower cost. So in the long run, we fix it once well and hopefully it stays fixed for quite some time. But how far away is that going to be? Well, that's a matter for government. It depends on what is um, agreed through the budget process and the timelines the government sets. I can't really comment on that. Dr Elizabeth Devaney, she's the CEO of the Consumers Health Forum of Australia and a member of the Strengthening Medicare Task Force. This is PM, I'm Samantha Donovan. You can hear all our programs live or later on the ABC Listen app. Ahead, South Australia makes a play for the New Year's cricket test, an insult to a spiteful New South Wales Premier. A five-day washed-out test in Sydney is much better than a five-day test in Adelaide. <laughs> oh, that, that's borderline arrogance, isn't it? You only need to ask cricketers and fans around the world. Adelaide Oval is one of the best ovals in the globe, let alone our country. Overseas now, and US defence officials are tracking what they suspect is a Chinese spy balloon moving at high altitude over the country's north. Fighter jets were mobilised in Montana as military leaders considered shooting down the balloon, but they eventually advised the President Joe Biden against it because of the risk to public safety. Neil Whitehead has more. Well, hello, everybody. Uh, I am sitting in my driveway here in Billings, Montana. Data analyst Chase Stoke was one of the Montana residents who noticed something odd hovering above him. And right now, there is a ground stop on our airport, and this thing is up in the sky. And I have no idea what it is. 
He says he thought the mysterious round white object which he captured in this footage was a UFO. In fact, he filmed what appears to be a suspected Chinese spy balloon, which US officials say has been flying over America for a couple of days. Pentagon Press Secretary Patrick Ryder said the government's been tracking the balloon as it made its way across the country's north to Montana, which is home to one of the US's three nuclear missile fields and 150 intercontinental ballistic missile silos. John Blacksland is a professor of international security and intelligence studies at the Australian National University. That balloon would have had a range of recording devices for capturing information across the radio frequency spectrum, which then gives the Chinese authorities considerable insights into how those missile silos are defended, uh, which they could then use to bolster their own capabilities um, and also with a view to develop countermeasures to American uh, defence mechanisms over those silos. The Pentagon says the balloon was travelling at a high altitude, well above commercial air traffic. A senior defence official said military officials were confident it belongs to China and that while fighter jets were mobilised, the Pentagon ultimately advised President Joe Biden not to shoot it down because the debris might be dangerous to people on the ground. That would be an escalatory move. The United States is not at war with China, uh, but also it would set a terrible precedent. Let's not forget the United States is probably developing similar technology and probably, if not deploying it, then certainly contemplating deploying it. So by setting the, the, the standard, if you like, we won't shoot yours down, you don't shoot ours down, um, then you are setting de facto rules of operating these high altitude balloons. The defence official said the balloon's flight path would take it over a number of sensitive sites. However, it was assessed to have limited additive value for intelligence. The US says that Chinese spy satellites in low Earth orbit are capable of offering similar or better intelligence. So why a balloon? John Blackson says there's a good reason that age-old tool is making a comeback in Spycraft. The first espionage balloons were used in the US Civil War by the Union Army trying to spy on the Confederacy. But they went out of vogue when the airplane came along in the First World War and throughout the Second World War and beyond. Planes were the preferred means of aerial surveillance. And uh, thereafter, the emphasis was much more on satellites. But in the intervening half century, we've seen more than half century now, we've seen that space become quite a crowded field. And in addition, we've got the development of anti-satellite technology, which has been tested by China and other countries, generating enormous quantity of space junk that's made that low Earth orbit space more dangerous, more crowded, uh, more lethal for satellites and various platforms. So the the high-altitude uh, balloon gives you uh, another option. It also gives you range. It's just a matter of having options and other capabilities to complement the capabilities that come with a drone, with a satellite, with an aircraft. This is the new space or semi-space race. The incident is likely to increase tensions days before the US Secretary of State Antony Blinken travels to Beijing following up on a trip by Joe Biden last year. And it may still escalate. Canada has issued a statement saying it's detected a potential second high-altitude surveillance balloon. It says it's working with the US to safeguard sensitive information from foreign intelligence threats. 
Now Whitehead reporting. A community in Sydney's southwest is mourning the loss of a three-year-old boy who died in a hot car yesterday. Police say the boy had been left in the car for most of the day as the temperature outside rose over 30 degrees. The child's father has been questioned by police and released without charge. Child safety experts say about 5,000 children are rescued from hot cars each year and they're urging carers to take extra precautions to prevent more deaths. Isabel Masali reports. This man is shaken as he describes seeing a three-year-old boy in distress. A car window had just been smashed to rescue him. I then rang triple O immediately. I didn't know if anyone else had rang triple O. And um, the dad was doing the full-on CPR on the child. Um, It it seemed like he was incredibly distressed. and, And I then thought, well, when I was on the phone to Triple O, sorry, they said to me, do you have a defibrillator? And I'm like, this is Glenfield. Who has a defibrillator in Glenfield? You know, nobody. The tragedy unfolded on Thursday in Sydney's southwest, where temperatures reached 34 degrees. The boy's father was taken into police custody and later released without charge as investigations continue. Locals are now laying flowers and toys, along with messages including, rest in peace, little one. It seems like a nightmare and rare scenario, but motoring group NRMA is warning that instances of children being locked up in cars is increasingly common. Here's Peter Corey. So in January this year, the NRMA in New South Wales and the ACT responded to 213 cases. So our patrols rescued 213 children just in January alone last month. Uh, That's the highest month in the last five years. And then if you look at 2022 as a whole, combining the numbers for children and pets, it was the highest year in 10 years. Uh, So the numbers are increasing. That in itself is alarming. Regardless of the weather, it's just extremely unsafe to leave children uh, in, in cars, even just for a few minutes. It's just not safe. And we've seen instances in the past where vehicles have been stolen that are children in the back. So uh, that's why we're going to the steps today to remind the community that it's just unsafe and it's especially unsafe in this sort of weather. Christine Erskine from KidSafe New South Wales says nationwide there are about 5,000 near misses a year. She warns cars can reach a dangerous temperature very quickly so children shouldn't be left inside intentionally and extra precautions should also be taken to prevent parents from accidentally leaving their kids behind. We can only remind people um, that whenever you're travelling with a child, keep that child with you. If you're going to be distracted or you know have a plan B, put the keys uh, or the laptop or the purse or the wallet in the back seat next to the child or on the floor in front of the child so that when you get out of the car, uh, you'll remember something's missing. You'll go and get it and, and you'll, you'll be linked to that child as well. So that's a, sort of a, a relatively easy way to remember things. Dr Dragan Vangelov researches cognitive neuroscience at the University of Queensland. He says it's a devastating situation, but not uncommon. People call that forgotten baby syndrome, but um, I think this is quite obvious and devastating when it happens. But it's more or less an expression of regular mechanisms in how human memory or how human cognition or, if you wish, how human mind works. 
when you are doing something that's kind of a routine. So people tend to say, take their babies in the morning to a kindergarten on their way to work. So that kind of repeats over and over again. You are uh, you kind of get into this um, autopilot mode, if you wish. And uh, especially when the child is, say, asleep or you don't really hear the child, then you kind of forget. And then these things simply happen and they are devastating. I, I realize that, but people forget all sorts of things. He also recommends setting up safeguards, warning this can happen to any parent. Isabel Masali reporting. Dozens of Aboriginal children from far northwest New South Wales spent time in the ocean for the first time today. The Bush to Beach program rewards good school attendance with a three-day camp at Sydney's northern beaches. And this year's trip is particularly special after delays caused by the pandemic and flooding. Rachel Hayter reports. These First Nations children have travelled more than 12 hours overnight from Brewarrina but they're bright-eyed. They're the ones that I got. It's perfect swimming weather at North Narrabeen Rock Pool in Sydney's northern beaches. And these kids, aged 8 to 15, are learning to snorkel. I found shells, hermit crabs and stripy fish and coral. There was more crabs under the dirt. I see, I found some shells, I see fishes, I see two crabs. Lots of crabs, lots of fishes. Weird, we saw some schools of fish though, you know the little reef fish? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Their teacher is Miss World Australia, Kristen Wright. Snorkelling is a really easy way to demonstrate to the kids about the importance of water safety, um, but it adds kind of a fun element and it gets them out of their comfort zone and it gets them in environments that they're not necessarily used to. It's quite emotional. You get a tear in your eye watching this. The delight Jack Cannon's takes in the program he founded is obvious. It's just beautiful, especially when one of the kids say, that's a big river, never seen one that big before because I haven't seen the ocean before. <laughs> Bush to Beach rewards remote school children for good school attendance with a seaside holiday. A lot of truancy in the areas where the kids come from, very few completing year 10 or 12. The idea is that they go to school, behave themselves for a year and they qualify to come down to the beach. The kids already feel comfortable in this environment because there's mutual respect. We don't we don't have black fella, white fella, fella stuff here. We're all one person, all one people, and that's how the world has to be. Bush to Beach director John Cannons is Jack's son. They go back to the town, they tell all their friends about it, and it's kind of that continuous uh, approach to, you know, getting more and more kids wanting to go to school more and more, um, do well in school, and then they can come experience the beach. This year is extra special because these children from Brewarrina, Wallamaringal and Gaduga have just made it through huge floods. The helicopters had to come out and check on us and just to check on the floodwaters. Just before Christmas, Brewarrina was in isolation for nine weeks, completely flooded. They were moving around in boats. They couldn't drink the water, they had to boil the water. No one else had put up with it, but they just cop it on the chin and get on with life. South Narrabeen surf lifesaver Brian Grundy has been involved with the program for nearly a decade. You see a six-year-old get on a board they've never seen the surf before and ride it in the first time is absolutely amazing. 
Yeah, absolutely, mate. They, they're fantastic. He says the confidence Bush to Beach inspires in these kids spreads to their communities. We've seen kids who went to uni and became lawyers and have come back to help and doctors and it's just amazing. Kids set up their own car yards and it's like they're so full of happiness and vitality. And the, uh, talking to the aunts, they say it's real. It changed not only the kids, it changed their parents, it changed the whole town. It's quite remarkable, amazing. Janali Dewire is a social worker in Brewarrina. Yeah, I think it's um, a great experience for the kids to get out of town and to experience um, new things and to adventure, you know, what it's like to be outside of country. Um, and yeah, I think it's really very supportive for the kids as well. The 18-year-old is watching over the kids here at Narrabeen today. Just to show them that there's more to life than what they think there is. So there's better opportunities out in the real world rather than, you know, holding back on things. Brewarrina social worker Janali Dwyer ending Rachel Hayter's report. Well, cricket fans could be celebrating the start of the new year in Adelaide rather than Sydney if South Australia is successful in poaching the New Year's Test. For the last 25 years, Sydney has hosted the first fixture of the Test cricket calendar, but rain has dampened fans' enthusiasm in recent years. South Australia says it has the crowds and the weather to offer a better event. Angus Randall has more. After rumours started swirling that South Australia was making a play for the New Year's test, New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet sent down a bouncer. A five-day washed-out test in Sydney is much better than a five-day test in Adelaide. <laughs> um, I mean, why? Because at the end of it, you spent at the at, at the at, at the end of it, you spent five days in Adelaide. In response, his South Australian counterpart Peter Malinowskis played a straight bat. We've got a pretty good track record of hosting major events in South Australia, and it's something that we're pretty keen on. Obviously, we're wrapped that the AFL chose to have the AFL gather round in South Australia over New South Wales. They looked at the evidence and the facts, and they decided accordingly. And we hope that Cricket Australia might one day do the same. So how do cricket fans in SA and New South Wales feel? Oh, that, that's borderline arrogance, isn't it? So you only need to ask cricketers and, and fans around the world. Adelaide Oval is one of the best uh, ovals in, in the globe, let alone our country. So At least they wouldn't have to stop playing because of pouring rain. I mean, people go to pay to go and see them play. So Best place to watch cricket in Australia, Adelaide. Give us two tests. I think it's better for Sydney people because it's, um, there's uh, more people here to watch the match and you will get, um, there will be more people on the stadium. Well, it's always been here, so I think it shouldn't change, you know? Sydney, it's Sydney. SCG is SCG. Beautiful view, nice crowd also. Cricket is a game of statistics and the SA Premier says figures show Adelaide deserves a premium slot. We drew double the crowd at the Adelaide Test this year of what occurred in the Perth Test match. It's not unusual for the Adelaide Test to have comparable, if not louder, crowds than the Sydney Test. The Sydney Test at this time in the New Year's it tends to be washed out a bit. Six of the last nine tests at the SCG have ended in a draw, including this year's match against South Africa. The first two days of last month's test were stopped by rain, and the third day was completely washed out. ABC meteorologist Tom Saunders says it's been a pretty wet few Januaries. 39% of January days have rain. However, through the last eight years, 64% of days 
of test cricket at the SCG have had rain and that's resulted in quite a number of drawn test matches. In bad news for Sydney, the science supports a move away from January. Look, the best time of year in a cricket season for Sydney to have a test match would be late spring, early summer because even though the number of rain days is about the same, it's about one in three days, when it does rain, it normally doesn't last for as long. Most of the rain at that time of year tends to come from thunderstorms, and occasionally a storm may only last 10 or 20 minutes. While Sydney averages about 12 days of rain in January, Adelaide only averages four days. And when it does rain in Adelaide, normally the rain is extremely light and brief. The city only averages 20 millimetres in January, And that's one-fifth of the rain that Sydney gets. Despite the weather siding with Adelaide, Sydney is expected to put up a fight. It's hosted the New Year's Test every year since 1998. Lee Jamon is the CEO of Cricket New South Wales. The Sydney Test holds a special place no matter the weather. Most of the memorable moments over the last decades in Australian cricket have been held at the Sydney Cricket Ground. Um, And we've had a number of results. So I don't think the weather is any... Uh, reason to shift what is a significant test match in our in our um, calendar. David Rowe is an emeritus professor of cultural research at Western Sydney University. He says Sydney has built a post-Christmas festival that begins with the firing of the cannon to mark the Sydney to Hobart yacht race, and it's unlikely to let any of those events get away. You start breaking that up away from the public holiday and also the Uh, the New Year's Eve celebrations, New Year's Day and so on, that starts, I imagine, to weaken the appeal of a visit to Sydney. He says even if Sydney keeps the New Year's test, in the long run, everyone wins from this state spat. One is showing a statement of of intent, uh, you know, showing ambition. The other is, you know, trying to assert its authority in a sense of history and tradition and so on. And then the sport is of cricket itself is, the beneficiary in terms of being courted by by two uh, very enthusiastic suitors. The South Australian Cricket Association says as far as it's aware, no decisions have been made ahead of next summer. Angus Randall reporting. And that's PM for this week. PM's producer is David Cody. Technical production by Nick Dan and Kem White. I'm Samantha Donovan. PM with David Lipson will be back on Monday evening and you can join David on radio tomorrow morning for this week. I hope you have a great weekend. Good night. I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. A report's recommended an alcohol ban in Alice Springs be urgently extended as the community grapples with how to stop a worrying crime wave. After a tense week in the town, today we speak to an ABC reporter based there. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.